Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today I'm here with two special guests. I have Camille Renshaw and Brad Borden. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Thanks, Brian. It's great. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as backgrounds, Camille Renshaw is the CEO and co-founder of B&E, the first tech-driven brokerage and trading platform for net lease real estate. Launched in December 2017, they now have offices in New York, Chicago, Atlanta, Tampa, Charlotte, Orange County, San Francisco, and Dallas. Brad is a professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and principal at Bradley T. Borden, PLLC. He teaches, speaks, and writes extensively on federal income tax issues related to real estate transactions and assists property owners, investors, developers, and other real estate professionals on the federal income tax aspects of complex real estate transactions. Today, we're talking about Section 1033, I'll provide the caveat that I typically do in these type of conversations. I am a recovering attorney. I got a C in basic federal income tax. So I am not the expert in this at all, but I luckily have two people that do know what they're talking about here. And maybe let's start with Brad, if you could provide a definition of 1033 in the context of 1031, which is a the code that most people who are listening are more familiar with. Sure. So... Section 1031 applies when a property owner sells property, and the goal on that sale is to avoid recognizing gain. So the the seller will hire a qualified intermediary. Usually a qualified intermediary will come in and facilitate that transaction, and there are time periods that we'll talk about a little bit more. And then the Section 1031 applies to real property, so the replacement property is going to be real property. With Section 1033, 
Three, it applies to involuntary conversions. So we're talking about a typical situation would be when property is being condemned, some type of government, either a city or a county or, or the state or federal government is condemning property for some purpose, maybe to build a road, maybe to build a stadium. So, so Section 1033 applies. If property is going to be taken by involuntary conversion, there's a provision in the code, Section 1033, that allows the, the transfer of that property pursuant to the condemnation or whatever's happening. And then proceeds from that sale and condemnation can be used to acquire other property. And as we'll talk about Section 1033, we'll see that the types of property that can be acquired are, are slightly different from with Section 1031 and the time periods are different and the use of proceeds. And so there, there are some differences that way. So you included before we kind of started here, a really good outline. I could tell that you were excellent in law school based on the outline you put together. At least you talk, respect to tax. <laughs> yeah. You talk about these trigger events and you've got involuntary conversion as kind of the subheading and you list out destruction, theft, seizure, requisition. You highlighted condemnation imminence thereof. I'm not even sure what that is, but again, you, you really focused on condemnation. Are these other factors or, or fact patterns ones that you see in reality? I mean, are people actually doing 1033 exchanges based on theft or destruction? They can. I don't, I don't see a lot of 1033 transactions. Again, it's a situation you're talking about with, with section 1031, somebody decides to sell property or a buyer makes an offer or expresses interest in buying property, the owner can then begin to think, what am I going to do if I sell this? What, what type of planning opportunities are available? If you're talking about something like theft or destruction, there's not a lot of planning going into that, right? People aren't planning, how can I have my property destroyed or stolen? Um, so if the event happens, then proceeds would be received. You're talking about destruction and theft. You're probably talking about insurance proceeds being received and how are they going to be reinvested. Uh, so there's not a lot of lot of planning there. When you're talking about imminence thereof actually applies to seizure, requisition, or condemnation. So Section 1033 doesn't require the state to actually bring a condemnation proceeding to take the property if it threatens condemnation and then the, and then the property owner says, okay, we'll move forward and sell this to the state. And there's that threat of condemnation or imminence of condemnation um, and this can occur. But, but again, there's not a lot of, of planning opportunity there. The, the property owner isn't going to the state and saying, we want to have our property condemned, typically. Now, there are situations, I was talking to one attorney, it's never happened to me, but a, but a colleague or a friend in, in practice said that his client was approached by, I think it was a university, and the university wanted to buy the client's property and the attorney says, well, does the university have condemnation authority or can it go to the city or the state and have this property be condemned or threaten condemnation? And in that situation, the, either it was university or the state had the condemnation authority and threatened condemnation. And that allowed the property owner to get within Section 1033. And that makes a lot of sense. That's helpful. I want to, this is a good segue to go to Camille, because you actually have hands-on experience both personally and then in your business sense with this. And we're talking about kind of planning opportunities. If you could describe the typical situation that you run into here, where you do have advanced knowledge and, and some of the steps you can take to allow yourself to take advantage of this tax deferral. 
We usually, the property owner has some sense this is going to happen. They've gotten some notice from the municipality. The places that we've seen it, that some of the listeners maybe, you know, have heard this buzz to them from their CPA or attorney, you know, it's somebody who owns a Burger King, they're at a, or a CVS, and they're at an important intersection. And you, the municipality has just decided to expand the highway, you know, and they're not going to necessarily take the whole Burger King. Maybe they are but they're going to take X number of feet back. And then they may end up with half a million or a million dollars. As a result of that, they may end up with $10 million because they lost the whole site. Who knows? But we see a lot of those sort of partial property condemnations and they, you know, have half a million dollars that they're trying to figure out where to place. That happens. We've also seen in a, a lot of cities, surprising number of secondary markets across the country where there is industrial property in the middle of downtown and residential, you know, multifamilies coming in, multi-tenant office, high-end retail, and it just keeps getting closer and closer to the industrial and the industrial owner is successful there. I can think of a flour mill that is in downtown Tampa. And it's just surrounded by all this wonderful new construction that's happening. And, you know, eventually this flour mill needs to be, be moved somewhere else. That's uh, when 1033 comes into play. For me, the way I learned what it is, is I'm trying to remember 15 years ago or so, TVA, my family owns a lot of farm country in Tennessee. TVA wanted to take the back end of all of the farms along one of the roads that we own on and flood it. And so they were going to take back all that farmland as a part of that. And that's when our CPA mentioned to me, oh, there's this tax structure because I thought we were going to have to do a 1031. And I'm like, oh, my God, when, you know, what are the dates going to be? We got to move in 45 days, you know, just sort of that normal thing. And, you know, how much runway are we going to have? And as I dug into it, as I'm sure Brian will talk about in a second, I realized, you know, no, I have two years. And that was, you know, very different. And also you've got runway if you want to fight it. You know, we realized we didn't have a lot of ability to fight that, but you might fight a little bit about valuation. You know, it just sort of depends on the scenario. Yeah, Brad, I see you shaking your head. I'd love to hear your your commentary on on some of the more kind of specifics associated with the time periods, et cetera. Sure. Yeah, and I, and I think as Camille just alluded to, there are ways to delay the condemnation what well, one is to try to, to challenge the condemnation itself and also to, to challenge the valuation. So those are those are two ways that can sort of delay that process. But the time period with a section 1033 reinvestment is within two years after the close of the taxable year when the gain would be recognized, the replacement property has to be acquired. So if, if condemnation was happening right now or the, the transaction was happening that would that would trigger the gain. This is the start of 2023. You'd have 2024 and 2025, two years after the close of this year, to complete the reinvestment of those proceeds to avoid gain recognition. And how does that compare with 1031, which I know year to year, the dates can move around a little bit, but generally speaking, what are the time requirements associated with 1031? So with Section 1031, there's a 45-day identification period. And there's also a 180-day exchange period. So within 45 days after the sale in a 1031 exchange, the seller has to identify replacement property. And there are limits on how many properties can be identified. 
So the, the seller can identify up to three replacement properties. Don't have to worry about the value or any number of properties, but the value of the identified properties can exceed, cannot exceed 200% of what was sold. So you've got those limitations and that 45 days, as you all know, passes very quickly if the seller doesn't know the replacement property beforehand. Yeah, it can be a very tight timeline. And this kind of leads to the next phase of the conversation, which is how QIs or qualified intermediaries play into the space. For 1031s, they're hugely important and, and critical to ensuring that you can maintain that tax treatment. And they typically are very involved in the process. Is it the same in 1033? I, I saw Camilla comment, but... I was just going to say that it's worth mentioning that, uh, you know, you can't pretend to have or sort of do some major activity to to be able to have a 1033 versus a 1031. So it's not really within the principal's control, but it is more desirable to have a 1033 than to have a 1031 because of the timing that Brad is talking about. And also in terms of cash maintenance and things during that period, the cash that is being reserved or escrowed, how you take care of it, what you do with it during that time period, those kind of things. But I'll defer to you, Brad, to speak on that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So as as Brian was saying, there's when you're doing a Section 1031 exchange, the qualified intermediary is very much involved. And so Section 1031 applies to exchanges. An exchange is a, it's a technical tax concept or it's a tex, technical term in the tax lexicon. And basically, the exchange requirement prohibits the property owner who's doing the exchange from receiving any cash from the sale of the property. So all the cash has to go to the QI. So the QI controls the cash. With a Section 1033 transaction, the proceeds from the sale, the, the cash from the sale can go to, to the property owner. And so that's a, that's a very significant difference. And the cash doesn't have to be earmarked during that two-year period. It can be used for anything that the taxpayer wants to use it for. But at the end of the two-year period, you know, cash has to be reinvested and property has to exist that was similar or like kind to the property that was condemned. And, and Camille, you, you made a good point. And this is kind of the structure of this conversation. Brad is giving very technical expertise and insight. Camille is providing a little bit more color commentary on how this plays out in the business environment, which you know the business judgment rule comes into play. 1031 versus 1033, I assume you can't do a dual track, right? You have to elect one or the other, or is that not the case? Well, if you were able to do a 1033, I don't know why you would run the 1031 track. Just because the benefits still... are so much better for 1033 or the flexibility, et cetera. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't, you know, unless Brad knows of some technical reason, but I don't know why you would do that. I mean, you can still close immediately if that's what you wanted to do. There's nothing about a 1033 that requires that you don't close on a like-kind property for two years. You could do it simultaneous if that if you were so lucky as to have all that lined up. It's just that's not the typical example that I see. You know, if you basically if you can't run a 1033, you run a 1031, which is I mean, 1031 is the base case, really. Practically speaking, we only see 1033s with condemnation or how did you characterize it, Brad? Imminent? You yeah. Know? 
threat or um, imminence of. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that there are some scenarios where we've had conversations about it when it has come to destruction. And I remember this, I think it was a couple of hurricanes, but I remember it in particular in relation to Katrina and down near the Pensacola area, just some high wind damage that had happened to an owner's strip of properties. It was a, it was a, a bunch of different retail that just got destroyed through that. And I don't remember exactly the law, maybe you will, Brad, but there's actually a FEMA law that comes into play with destruction that also gives, I think it is something like 365 days or something something like that to allow you to do something very similar to a 1033. And this owner ended up electing that through FEMA because he wanted to go ahead and replace the property so quickly. There was no reason to do it otherwise. And that still, I think, falls under... 1031, but there's sort of some FEMA clause associated with a section 1031. Again, Brad would be the expert I would defer to on that. Yeah, yeah. So typically the 45 day and the 180 day periods under section 1031 are, are fixed. But if there is a federally declared disaster, those time periods can be extended up to 120 days. So maybe, longer, but... maybe it was a total of 300 days then. And it's been a minute since Katrina. So, but I remember it was extended a bit and I don't remember, would it be associated with the specific disaster or is it part of the code? And so the, the code allows for the extension. There has to be a federally declared disaster. COVID was, was nationwide. So there's a, there's a disaster area that's associated with the extension with COVID-19, the disaster area was the entire United States. If it's Katrina, then it's going to be, Katrina was Houston, right? So it's going to be, yeah. New Orleans, but yeah. New Orleans, yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the replacement property process and, and how that looks. Brad, if you don't mind kind of giving, you know, obviously in 1031, it's like kind, there's a little bit more nuance within 1033 or potentially broader scope that you can explore. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So as you said, section 1031, the replacement property has to be like kind to the relinquished property and section 1031 only applies to real property. So real property is land and improvements. So that's what qualifies for section 1031. There are some partial interest in real property, like oil and gas interests, development rights, air rights, those types, uh, water rights, leases, those types of properties can come within the Section 1031 definition of real property. With Section 1033, there is a like-kind standard that can apply. If the property is real property, it was held for productive use in a trade or business, and the property was condemned, then the like-kind standard can apply. It's, a, it's additive. It doesn't take away the similar related in use standard that we're going to talk about right now. So Section 1033 also has this similar or related in use standard, which is it's actually in some ways broader than Section 1031 to what services are being provided by the owner of the property before the involuntary conversion. How is the property being used before the involuntary conversion? And then how is the property, the new property being used after? And this replaces what the courts and the IRS used to apply, which was a functional use and we don't need to go into that, but there was an old standard that's been replaced now. And with this standard, if you have somebody that owns property and is leasing the property, we're asking what is the owner lessor doing with respect to that property? 
prior to the involuntary conversion and what's being done with the replacement property after. So it can, the property can, can vary. It, it, there, are, there are numerous examples. So for example, before the involuntary conversion, the property owner may have owned and leased a gas station. And then after the replacement property is residential property that's being leased by the, the property owner. So there the use is owning the property for rental purposes. And we'll look at what type of activity that the owner was doing. But it can also apply to broader to not just the real property, but all of the business assets of the property owner. Camille, I, I know you have some experience in regards to the, re- the replacement property kind of process timeline, such I'd love to hear your insights and thoughts there. Yeah, I think what we typically see is folks are very fatigued when they get through with this condemnation process. That's, you know, sort of the base case. As we said, there are exceptions and other other ways 1033 is utilized. But typically it's somebody who has had to negotiate pricing with some municipality. It's taken a while. Often there are multiple family members involved. I mean, I, I just can tell you from personal experience, I really relate to it's, uh, it. It can be very fatiguing. So folks come out of that and they want a much simpler investment, typically. I mean, obviously, if your business was destroyed, you're going to need to go buy another property to utilize with your business. Just practically speaking, that's probably what you're going to want. But again, the base case that we see is investment properties. They're fatigued because it was a more hands-on, multi-tenant asset. And now they've gone through this with their family or their partners. They want to cease to have that sort of cumbersome investment profile and they move into net lease. That's kind of the base case that we see. And they are out to buy a gas station or a QSR, something like that. You know, they, because they have the luxury of time, may really want to dig in in terms of the debt. I think in this environment in particular, you know, here in 2023, Debt may look really different at the end of the year compared to now. It's hard to know if that will be better or worse, but you know you probably want to sit down and develop a thesis around what debt scenario you want and where you think it's going to be, and then come up with, hey, you know, our preference is to have this closed out in a hurry because we think debt's going to get worse. So we want to pick something as fast as we might for a 1031 exchange here in Q1. Or, you know, hey, we, you know, we see these economic events coming forward and we think maybe, maybe, you know, we want to push this to 2024 even, and we're going to wait and sort of see where the debt markets are and and park this capital. Meanwhile, take advantage of the higher interest rate environment we're in with that capital, let it earn some interest, and then we'll invest it next year. You know, those are the conversations kind of where it starts. And then we go out, you know, we at B&E have a tech platform where folks can scour the whole market for net lease assets. So from there, it really makes no difference if it's a 1031 or a 1033 in terms of sourcing those properties, running your debt and equity ratios, trying to figure out what you can afford, you know, what credit profile fits the family best, all that. But really what we typically see is folks trying to get into something that's just not quite as much work. You know, they're, they're tired and did not usually enjoy the experience they just had with their partners and, and they want to get in something a little, little more hands off. I will say in terms of experience, I I feel like we sort of touched on control of proceeds and something we we glossed over that that does come into the process a bit is if you decide let's kick the can until 2024 to make an investment of some sort, you know, we've got a couple million dollars, you know, we'll put it in the stock market, we'll do something else with it. You know, hopefully you will put it in a very, very 
low risk investment, you know, treasury bonds, something where you can't lose your base equity. We definitely have seen clients spend through the 2 million or even spend through four or 500,000 of the 2 million. And then they've triggered a tax event for themselves because they don't have anywhere to come up with that capital in 2024 so that they can fulfill their 1033 obligation. That's a real risk that everybody needs to be aware of. And especially if you have partners and you're not the only person in the room touching those proceeds, you need to have dialogue from go about how you intend to handle that so that you absolutely don't trigger a tax event for yourself. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Take the next step by joining the Capital Club, an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals organized by Excelsior Capital. You'll gain access to exclusive alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, private events, and more. Visit excelsiorgp.com slash capital club podcast for more information and to sign up today. Yeah, Brad, I saw you nodding your head. I assume much like 1031, this is where, you know, to use a technical term, deals bust, right? Where they lose the qualification. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah there, there were a couple of things to maybe follow up on there. I mean, Camille was talking about the debt, obviously. They're at the end, with, with section 1031, the exchange proceeds have to be reinvested in the replacement property. So when you're closing on the replacement property to have a good 1031, to, to defer all of the gain, avoid recognizing all of the gain, all of the proceeds have to be reinvested and then the re- value of the replacement property has to equal the value of the relinquished property. With section 1033, the value of the replacement property has to equal the value of the relinquished property. There is no requirement that the proceeds be reinvested. So as Camilla's saying, the proceeds from a 1033 can be reinvested somewhere else. If there's sufficient financing to go out and buy the replacement property, you can, you can 100% debt finance the, the replacement property. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm certainly not trying to infer that a debt is required. I, yeah, just exactly. again, for a practical perspective that, you know, I think we always are dealing with somebody who wants to leverage those proceeds. But yeah, absolutely. That's, those are kind of business versus tax issues. Yeah. And then with respect to the, the triple net property as replacement property, if we're applying the like kind standard, with Section 1031, it's going to be real property that's sold. A triple net real property is going to be like kind to whatever was sold. If you're in the 1033 space, if you have to come under similar or related in use, if the condemned property was actively managed, then triple net property may not qualify under similar or related in use. And there you want to come within the, the like kind standard, which should apply to most real property that's condemned. And and how about the improvements side of things? What's allowable, not allowable? And again, kind of contrasting 1031 versus 1033. So with section 1031, the property acquired has to be like kind. So if the replacement property is going to be constructed, the only thing that will qualify as replacement property is construction is completed at the time the replacement property is acquired. So if you have an incomplete construction at the time the replacement property is acquired, sometimes client will say, clients will ask, can I use the exchange proceeds to prepay construction services or to prepay for materials? 
And the answer there is no, because prepaid construction services are not real property. Prepaid materials are not real property. So it's only what is affixed to the property at the time of acquisition that qualifies. And so it's also at Section 1031 doesn't allow the person doing the exchange to acquire a piece of land and then do construction during the 180-day period because what's if the land is acquired and then construction is done while the land is owned, what's being acquired is the materials, which aren't real property, and again, the construction services, which aren't real property. With Section 1033, on the other hand, we're looking at what did the property, what did the person own when the property was condemned? What did the person own at the end of the two-year two -year period? And so proceeds from condemnation can be used to construct improvements on property that the, that the taxpayer owns during that two-year period. So it's not, it's not, it's not the, the acquisition of the materials and the services aren't necessarily problematic. We're just looking at what existed at the end of that, at the end of that time period. And then what about kind of ownership structure? I know within 1031, there are a lot of options there in terms of what you can or can't do midstream. Is it the same for 1033? Right. So with Section 1033, we have a, a guidance from the IRS, a private letter ruling, where the IRS, where a partnership owned property that was condemned, the partnership divided. And so there were multiple partnerships after the condemnation. Some of the condemnation proceeds went to each of the, I think it was three partnerships. And then each of the three partnerships acquired property. And the IRS says that Section 1033 applied to the entire transaction. And then that's significant because, I mean, typically when we're talking about Section 1030, 1031, we're saying that the taxpayer that sells the relinquished property has to acquire, be the taxpayer that acquires the replacement property. If you divide one partnership into three, you're going to have at least two new partnerships, two new or two partnerships with new taxpayer identification numbers. And typically we're saying for an exchange to be good, the entity, if you look at the taxpayer identification number, the tax and EIN, the EIN that transfers the relinquished property has to acquire the replacement property. What this 1033 rule ruling says is you can have one EIN transfer or have property condemned, and you can have two new EINs acquire the replacement property. So that's very significant. That's, that's 1033. Now, a lot of people and smart people believe that that ruling transfers over to the 1031 context. So you can't actually have a partnership sell, relinquish property, divide, and have multiple new partnerships acquire the replacement property. People apply that. Again, it's, I'm just going to say it's, it's not directly on point in the 1031 context, but, but people are applying it. I have some concern about doing it, but, but people are definitely doing it. Can you speak more directly, Brad, to, I know that my clients have come to you when they've had questions about C-Corps versus S-Corps with 1031 exchange and, and other, you know, similar structures, how is that, I, you know, that, that definitely is beyond my purview in terms of how that would come into play with 1033. Sure. I mean, this, this ownership restructuring is, is, it's a huge area. It comes up all the time, right? And we sort yeah. of just jumped into it, but the situation is typically you have an entity that owns real property and that entity has multiple owners. 
And it may be that they bought in together and now the property is being sold and they want to go their separate ways or one or two of the yeah. owners want to go their separate ways. You may have, it's a legacy property where parents bought it, managed it. Now it's passed to another generation and they're less interested in doing the management. They want to sell and go their separate ways. So with a partnership, we can generally divide tax-free. Um, when you have a corporation, however, if there's, so the, the division of a partnership or the division of any of these entities typically requires a distribution of property from the entity up to the owners. And that might be a distribution of an undivided interest, a tenancy in common, or we call them tick interest, right? So a distribution of a tick interest up to the owners, and then the owners can either sell the property and do a 1031 exchange, or they can sell the property and take out cash. Um, so that distribution, if you have an entity taxed as a partnership, that distribution can be tax-free. If you have an S corporation or a C corporation, if there's a distribution of property out of that entity, that triggers gain recognition at the entity level. And if you're talking about an S corporation, that gain gets allocated pro rata based on ownership to all of the shareholders. And so that becomes um, a problem, right? So if you have one part, one shareholder in S corp that wants to receive cash, if this was a partnership, we could distribute out an undivided interest. And that partner could then sell that undivided interest and, and receive cash. We have an S corporation. If we distribute out that undivided interest in the property, that triggers gain at the share at the corporate level. And that gain gets allocated to the partners who want to do a 1031 exchange, don't want to cash out. So that that's a little, that's a problem with corporations. If you have a situation where the shareholders of a corporation want to own you have a corporation that owns real property. The shareholders want to own real property after the restructuring, after the disposition. We may be able to do a tax-free division, and you know that doing a tax-free division just requires satisfying several technical requirements. But it does allow for the division of a corporation. But it does require that all of the resulting corporations are owning real property and managing real property after after the division. In my experience, Brian, the real answer is you call Brad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where, you know, we're, we're winding down the conversation. This is a very esoteric concept with a lot of legalities and tax issues involved. My question for you, Camille, is having gone through this on the business side, if you're presented with a fact pattern that 1033 is applicable, who do you want to have at the kitchen table to make sure you're thinking through this and doing everything appropriately. Yeah. I mean, literally I call Brad. So no question about that. That's who I would really trust to structure it, not stub their toe, that kind of thing. Generally the principal CPA is at the table. There may be some kind of real estate council that runs with the family. They probably won't have Brad's expertise, but certainly want to make sure everybody's talking just so we structure everything. And if there is some kind of, you know, legacy dialogue and, you know, with the municipality and it's not, you know, the transaction is not completed yet, that kind of thing, then I, Brad definitely needs to be in dialogue with them from, you know, 
transaction perspective, you want someone like B&E, you want a broker at the table that has a specialty in the property that you want to acquire, not necessarily who helped you acquire the property you're relinquishing. That is often a very different specialty. So get that person engaged, that, that brokerage firm, hopefully it's a team, engaged very early on. You know, whether it's a 1031 or a 1033, we always tell the client the only person, you know, the only time you're wasting is ours, not yours, by getting us engaged earlier. So it allows us just some runway to help you structure things and get the replacement property as quickly as possible. I think whether it's 1031 or 1033, unless you really have somewhere that you know you want to park that cash for a two-year period, most of the clients are like, no, I want to get it into another income-producing vehicle ASAP. Like I, that's money my family is not making these months while I try and source a replacement property. So that time is pretty important. So getting us engaged faster is better. But th- those are the primary folks that I would want to have at the table. So certainly all the decision makers, getting some alignment between them is really important and not, again, always easy after you've gone through sort of a fatiguing event, like a condemnation, but very important. Brad, anything you want to add there in terms of just kind of best practices or people, again, I think for things like this, you can get really caught up in the granular details, but like, I think it's more important to think about what questions do I need to be asking or who do I need to make sure that I'm including in this type of conversation if, if as a listener, you're potentially going through one of these transactions. Right. You definitely want there to be communication between all the parties. Right. But, I mean, these are going to be complex transactions. If you have somebody structuring them, if I was structuring a transaction, I want the CPA to be involved to know what's going on, to make sure the CPA is going to be comfortable reporting it. And some of these become very complex. So I've had situations where the you know CPA waits until the tax return is due or would typically be prepared and then find out, oh, this is more complicated than I expected. And so there needs to be some runway there. So there, there are different types of of clients, right? There's developers, there's property managers, and they're going to be out looking for their own property. If you have a situation, as Camilla is saying, which is also very typical, where people are getting out of or retiring from the property management, having people like having Camille on the transaction, helping them find the replacement property is, is very important, having that happen, happen early. And the type of products I think Camilla can speak more to this than I can. The type of products that are available, you want to be able to have the national search, the national scope, right? Because that you're basically shopping price there and, and cap rates and credit tenants, the tenants. So you want to have the broad, you know, the broad scope to search when you're doing that. Well, I want to thank you both so much for taking the time to join us today and going through what is a unique set of circumstances. Brad, let's start with you. If folks are interested in connecting with you to learn more about your practice area, either within 1033 or not, what's the best way for them to get in touch? You can, I think I show up on Google, you type in Brad Borden, section 1031. I think it comes up pretty easily. Bradborden.com is a website, Brooklyn Law School. So that that's probably the, the easiest way. Camille, if you could do a call out again on the firm and uh, the best way to find you all. Yeah, I, I work with a, a net lease brokerage firm called B plus E, brokers plus engineers. But if you type in 
B plus E, you'll find us. The website is tradenetlease.com, tradenetlease.com. You can certainly find me through our platform. You also can find me and Brad on LinkedIn. You can look us up on LinkedIn and find out worlds about each of us. So yeah, and and certainly you can Google either of us and you'll you'll find out lots about our transactions and history. Well, again, I want to thank you. And for the listeners, please do let us know your favorite part of the conversation. Leave a comment, leave a rating. This was kind of the genesis was we did a transaction where there was a 1033 exchange into one of our investments and I had never heard of it before. So it kind of got me on this boondoggle and going down this rabbit hole of learning more. And so I appreciate Camille introducing me to Brad and I want to thank YPO in general for just putting me in touch with cool people doing cool things that are really good. And so I definitely encourage you, if you are basing at 1033 or 1031, frankly, you won't find any better people than Brad or Camille in the business or industry. So please do reach out. You'll learn a lot. So I want to thank you all for joining me today. And I look forward to staying in touch and hopefully we can do some work together as well. Terrific. And yeah, definitely a shout out to YPO for making the connection. Thank you, Brian. This is great. Okay. Take care. Good to see you, Brad. Thank you all. All right. Bye, Camille. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.